Hello and welcome to Hightailing Through History, High Tales of History's Tall Tales. Each week, two sisters get together, get high, and like to surprise each other with stories from history. It's a casual hangout. Welcome to our smoke circle. I'm glad you're here. Hi, Katie. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Just trying to wipe that visual from my mind. <laughs> you know. Don't visualize. Don't Just know visualize. that it was funny. Think of like a flying squirrel and a badger. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why it's a badger. Because like, you're in the badger, right? I was a flying squirrel. Oh. Wee! Hey, what are you drinking today? Um, tequila. Nice. Yeah. I mean, yeah. pink tequila, but it's like a mix. But whoever told me that I drink like an amateur, I'm sorry. The pre-mixed one that I put the particular brand I buy, he makes great tequila. So I don't know why everyone, <laughs> listen, I know. He just makes it so darn good. He does. You liked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See? I'm on a couple of edibles, mm-hmm. and I liked Katie's. <laughs> I liked Katie's little margarita mix. So then I added orange juice and some raspberry sparkling water to it. Oh, it's delicious! I'm gonna think of a cool name for Brawless at Sunset. Brawless at Sunset. Happy Brawless at Sunset. Indeed. There we go. Welcome to episode four, everybody. I feel like I'm in episode four hundred and four. Galaxy 44. Galaxy 44. (laughs) We have to do our... Okay, so we have to do our rock, paper, scissors to decide who's going to go first. I'm going to win this week. Okay. I actually, like, am feeling the confidence. Like, I actually formulated a plan last week. Yeah. I was listening to you, but I formulated a plan and I'm prepared now. I'm going to come at you with guns blazing. Wow. Okay. Just a rundown of what mm. a rock looks like. Okay, don't even. What a scissor looks like. <laughs> and this is paper. Not this, not a cup, <laughs> but flat. Rock, paper, scissor, shoot. Yeah! I told you I would win. I formulated a plan. Do you know how I did that? Because you pick scissors every time, you stoned nutcase. <laughs> Are you serious? I've picked scissors you every single time. You have picked scissors every time, and I've been dumb enough to attempt paper every time, but I can't even do paper properly, so. You're laughing That's because you so didn't realize funny. it. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. You've picked scissors oh. every time, and now I finally, finally figured out your secret, so I am undefeatable now. How's that's your a, week? That's a fair assessment. It's good. Um, oh, yeah, I guess I should. I meant to ask you if you've done anything fun in, in history themed this past week. So this weekend, I went to the Renaissance Fair. I love the Renaissance Fair. Christian and I were thinking (laughs) of getting drunk and then going there just to people watch. We would love you to come with us. Have you done that? I go like every other weekend, so yeah. I first went when I was nine, ten maybe. Oh, okay. As a kid. Had so much fun. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the weekend I was turning 21, Christian and I were dating. Mm-hmm. Or just about a year at that point. And the last weekend is usually my birthday weekend. Yeah, it's Labor Day weekend. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I said, you know what? I haven't gone to the Renaissance Fair since I was a kid. I remember it was like so fun and kind of magical and weird and stuff. It like, still is. <laughs> he's like, absolutely, because he's a lovely man like that. And, absolutely. And he's like, yes, darling. I'll take you to this Renaissance Fair. And I was like, God oh, bless. This will be so fun. Uh, we walked around. I wish, I wish you could see the look on my face like this. 
all the time. I was like, oh shit, is it always been this weird? <laughs> yes, the answer is and then yes. Christian had an even more strange look on his face. And then I started having the look on my face of, oh, she's going to break up. With me. <laughs> he's he's going to think I'm into me. this. I don't know what's going on. And he's going to leave me. <laughs> and after a while, he started. After a while, he started getting, like, really weirded out. He was having fun, but he was like, this is weird. Maybe we should go now. And I said, yeah, sure. We How long had you been there? Oh, you mean, like, that day? Mm-hmm. I don't know. A few hours. Okay, so he had a good dose. Yeah. Did he not like the shows? The shows are fun. The washing lunches are a good time. No, I've never seen a show there, which is really oh, weird. And then, which is, like, why people go, but I had never seen a show. Oh, they're they so around. fun. And, um... Uh, on our way back out of the park, a drum circle had started. I love the drum circle. So you were there at the end of the day because it's the yeah. only time it happens. And holy yeah. shit, the fucking drum. It- Blake makes me sit there. We buy a drink and we buy food and we watch it like we're at the theater. I'm like, are you serious? I'm like, we could get a head start on all the like crowds right now and leave the parking lot. He goes, no, I you want my drum circle. Drums. I'm like, oh. I, I am not even, like, I can't describe it. It won't do it justice. It's just, it, it you kind of have to see it. Picture the weirdest wonder. You know what? I'm sure there's a drum circle that can be found on YouTube. I'm sure there's a I'm going to yeah. find it. I'll post a link. If if there is, I'll post a link in the well, show You'll notes. definitely have to. Because it's magical. It is magic. And Christian took a video and goes, oh, I'm sending this to my mates back home. Because <laughs> he's crying and he's laughing so hard. And, well, because uh, there's people, like, oh, just to, ver- so like, just to, like, explain to those people who have not seen it. It's like a vaguely hippie drum circle, but also it's like, it's a bunch of people getting like super into it and like just randomly dancing and shaking whatever's on their body. It's like people picture, I picture like when people talk about Quakers back in the day, how like the Holy Spirit would fill them up. That's what this fucking drum circle looks like. People are sitting there shaking and a bouncing and like, and there's just some dude like dressed as a knight, like doing like just very vaguely like small jerks the whole time like barely dance it was funny but i was like what am i watching right now for this week's story i was kind of um i've been knocking this one around for a while because i kind of stumbled upon it sort of i think there used to be a website like that stumbledupon.com it's always a good one (laughs) so this was this particular uh show was um Around in the 90s. It's pretty interesting. So, Ruroni Kenshin. The I'll give you the time, place, and a little bit of history. Because here's the thing. It's written in... And I'm so glad I watched it as an adult. Because as a child, I would never have understood this historical context of this story. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to it. So, um, Ruroni, I believe, means wandering. Or, like, rogue, wandering, you know, okay. kind of thing. Yeah. So, Kenshin is a wanderer. So, it takes place 10 years after the Meiji Revolution, 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 oh my god, Revolution in Japan. Bear with me, there's a lot of Japanese words that I did my best to look up, and I will do my best to pronounce them. However, I'm under the influence of alcohol, so it might be a rough go, but I'm going to do my best. So, the it's also known as the Bakumatsu period, also known as the Japanese Revolution. Uh, this is the end of the Edo era, which is also the feudal Tokugawa shogunate period of Japan. 
I'm going to explain all this. Bear with me. Uh, It's from about 1853 to 1867 is when the modern empire of the Meiji government took over. So feudal, Mm -hmm. a lot of what we context we understand is the Western world. So in, oh, I apologize. In um, what you would understand as like kings, knights, lords who have land, peasants. Peasants are owned like property. That's kind of how the feudal age of Japan works. So, like, your samurai was the lord of your land, and obviously he'd go to war when necessary because there were clans and stuff like that. Again, I'm not going to get super deep into this. I'm just giving you a general understanding so you understand the environment that these people lived in. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, they could do whatever they wanted because they were in charge. Samurai, stuff like that. So, like, if you were beneath someone, you were treated like dirt. It's the same thing back in, like, the feudal ages of England. Peasants were dirt. They were disposable. They didn't matter. It's kind of the same thing here. Um, Obviously, in the Eastern world, like, there's difference with, like, honor and, like, respect and all that. You know, there are subtle differences in culture, but the general idea is that, yes, that feudal, I'm higher station than you in life, you serve me, you exist for me kind of thing. Okay? Okay. Important to remember. So that's the world that Japan is coming from. Now, what year... Now, the year, the 1853, 1867, so they were in that, like, age longer than everybody else was, because they were in there till about the 1700s. You know what I'm saying? Because what's happening in America right now is the Civil War. Okay. So they're already a little further than that. And then in England, don't even ask me what was happening in the 1850s, but I'm sure it wasn't this. <laughs> well, by that, it would have been industrialized. Yeah. You know, and all that. Well, yeah. yeah, we would have been at that point. Yeah, Just to give point. you an idea of where Japan is versus the rest of the world, because mm-hmm. that's going to come into play. So the Meiji era extends from 1868 to 1912. So the Meiji era basically is characterized by uh, the, the beginnings of westernization of Japan, uh, which means it became industrialized. So they started, like, that's the era that the first steam engine was used. They finally had trains. So a lot of stuff, a lot of science, stuff like that coming from the Western world to Japan. Uh, And it became its own nation state and emerged as their own great nation. This is the year for Japan to do that. Because, as you'll see in the story I'm about to tell you, Western uh, countries' powers, let's say powers, because I didn't look too far into it, were trying to take over Japan as one of their annexed places. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what a lot of the Western nations did, you know, hence like a lot of French colonization in Africa, a lot of like those islands and like the Bahamas and stuff like that are very like under British control, stuff like that, New Zealand. Same idea here. They wanted Japan as their own. So this was a big turning point in Japan because it made it so that Japan came up as their own power and not owned by somebody else. That's cool. Okay. It is cool. Yeah. So that meant a radical change in politics, society, and economy for Japan with this industrialization, which includes, here's the social structure, meant that society adopted more of an equal status for every citizen instead of peasants, nobles, military royalty. So it's important to know how. So things like that are a part of this story in this show that I watched. I never understood that as a child. There was so much going on that's like, you would never know. So, uh, the story of Kenshin follows a samurai who has taken a vow to never kill or take another life because during the revolution he took hundreds because he was an assassin and led forces against, I mean, so think civil war in America. That's kind of how this was here for Japan. 
people, the samurai, first of all, I'm sure you know something about them. How they were around for what, hundreds of years? Yeah. 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 They're a very important, integral part of Japanese culture. They didn't want it, like the legacies, legacies of these passed down to their sons. It's an art. It's, it's, um, heritage. You know, that was an extremely difficult shift. People in power who now don't want to give up power. And then people who are treated, who did not have power, like, yeah, I want to be treated equally. Just because you were born separately from me means you're better than me. So that Japan's going through that right now. You know, we went through it here and every country goes through it, in my opinion. But so that's what it's really interesting. Um, so he was on the side of the Meiji government in the show. Ten years after the revolution. So he becomes a wandering swordsman doing good for other people. Basically, he's going to live his life now for repentance. It's a good concept. Uh, he carries with him a reverse blade sword to help him keep his promise not to take another life. So traditional Japanese blade. I'm sure you even know what it's called. The katana, yes, is characterized by, so they're long, you understand that, yep, they're very long, they have a slight curve to them, and the curve is on the outside of the blade, where you would cut things with, yep, Mm -hmm. mostly people and limbs. Uh, It is characterized with a long grip, enough to accommodate two hands, because you can use it with a single hand, but you can also use it with two hands. Okay. Um, That kind of matters with swords, not all swords are made double-handed. So, Kenshin's sword actually has a name that I'm going to do my best to pronounce. I looked on the internet and it didn't help me. So, uh, Sakabato? Sakabato? It's just like a katana, but the cutting edge is actually on, like, the inside. So, not that curved side, but it's on the other side of it, right? So, the outside is dull. It's located on the back of the sword. It is a blade not created for war, but for peace. Which is interesting. So this is how the show is written. So he walks around so he can disable his enemies. Because all this man has known. Do you know what it takes to become a samurai? I don't know the process. I know that it's... Years. So I didn't realize that they are like weapons from head to toe. I thought they were swordsmen. Until Blake, who obviously knows a lot about this stuff. He said to me, because I said something, because I was watching the show. I said, is it normal for him to drop his sword and grapple with someone? You know, he goes... Yeah, absolutely. Do you not understand that, like, they were expert martial artists? So I was like, no, nobody told me. How, why would I know that? Yeah. I live in America, <laughs> you know? And he's like, okay. He goes, not only were they great swordsmen and elite warriors, they knew martial arts and they were, like, no matter what situation, they could defend themselves. So that's why samurai are elite warriors. It took years to become one, and you had to be, like, trained, like a squire to a knight, um, under one. And, um, I mean, they, like, so, but also, flip of that, in this new Meiji era, these people know nothing else but the way of the samurai. Right. That's all you were taught. Mm -hmm. Yes, they know how to read and write. Like, they're educated, but there was no other purpose for them in life except to be samurai. So, now all these people are displaced from their life, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So... It's one of those things that he will now use his life to repent for that in the only way he knows how. With a sword, he's just not going to kill anybody. He has a reverse blade sword. Now, blades that are actually reverse bladed or actually have cultural significance in Japan, uh, they're used in um, ceremonies because it was... So back in the day, this day, before Meiji, you could not have weapons at tea ceremony. So what you could do is you could have a reverse bladed weapon 
So you could defend yourself if you needed to, but you weren't breaking the rules and regulations. So they're called like flower daggers or something like that. Um, The theme of this show is atonement, peace, and romance. A good romance, but that's kind of how it goes. So, interesting, right? I've watched this as a child. Very interesting to me. So I googled a little bit of it. Come to find out that Kenshin is based on a real guy from history. This is where the history comes in. (laughs) I thought it was pretty cool. He didn't look anything like him because the whole thing from the show is he's a red-haired swordsman and he has like a little cross-shaped scar on his cheek. None of that's how the real guy looked, but still cool. He's also known as a Batosai, which means translates loosely to manslayer. They well, they killed a shit ton Casual. of people. Wow. Casual, yes, indeed. <laughs> um, so Man, the sorry. real Kenshin Himura, Batosai, is Kawakami Genzai. He is a Japanese samurai of the late Edo era. Now Edo comes right before Meiji and the revolution. He is one of the four most notable assassins. Of the Bakumatsu period. That's the B word. Sorry, not the Bakumatsu period. Is the revolution. Okay. Okay. He was born... Bear with me. Ko, Komori Genjiro? Maybe? Uh, in 1834. And he had an older brother. And obviously his older brother was chosen as the heir. So he was then subsequently adopted by Kawakami Gen, Genbi? Genbai? And renamed to Kawa. Kawakami Genzai. You know, because now he's going to go be, like I said, you you had to learn from a samurai to become a samurai. Uh, He studied, and this is the one I could not find any help for this on the internet, was Jishukan? Or I think it's at Jishukan, a school. He studied martial arts and swordsmanship before going to work as a common laborer at Kumamoto Castle. It's an area that still exists today. So he was sent to work as like a common laborer and cleaner at 16, and he wholeheartedly devoted himself to all of this whilst honing his skills of swordsmanship and martial arts. He never stopped practicing it. He kept using it, uh, including the sato, the tea ceremony, and the ikebana, ikebana. It's the flower arrangement. So samurai were expected to know ceremony, so that's why they have those big, beautiful gardens. They would arrange, like, flower... Yeah, they were flower arrangers and they knew tea ceremonies. Like, it was a big deal that samurai knew that. Isn't that wild? I was like, whoa, you telling me this, like, dudes that would, like, chop your limbs off knew how to arrange flowers? The answer is yes. <laughs> Isn't that weird? I mean, weird for us, but cool. Amazing. It's kind of an interesting dichotomous relationship. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Isn't that cool? I love that for them. Indeed. <laughs> so he learned all of that, too. So he knew proper ceremony. You know, goes along with the respect and position of where he was at in life. Right. So in 1851, he went with his lord to Edo, which is present-day Tokyo. He had brought that area. Uh, but left in anger as the shogunate, or the leader of that time, Japan, began entering unfair treaties with Western powers. Here's where those Western powers are coming in, trying to take over and take advantage. So, he returned to Kumamoto and entered the Gendokan Academy before returning to Edo. So he went and studied. I think this is where he learned, like, advanced swordsmanship is what it sounded like. It's hard to know. Not a lot of stuff is written down, so we piece together what we can. 
So the imperial, at this time that he returned back, imperial loyalists, imperial being imperial Japan, the Edo era, were hunted out, executed, exiled, and imprisoned. It's called the Anzai, Anzai Purge. Gensai was at the Kumamoto residence, so the people who own the castle, he was at their residence in Edo. So he's there amongst all of them. Uh, a bunch of assassins who were trying to, because this is at the point where we're turning into a civil war, essentially. Uh, so a bunch of assassins who were trying to kill the people in power because they want Japan to not be westernized, escape, and Genzai doctored them, and he held a tea ceremony for them. Very honorable thing to do. And told them of his adoration, admiration for them. So in 1861, so this is 10 years after he went to see his lord in Edo, he married Misawa, I think it's Taiko, another Kumamoto retainer's, like him, adopted daughter. He married her. She was also a martial artist. And she used Naginata. It's kind of like pole with a good blade on the end of yeah, it. Do you know what a Naginata is? Yes. Okay. Well, yeah, there's some one. different versions of it because there's other shows where I've seen them represented oh, as well. Okay. But yeah, you have the right idea. It's a longer pole with a longer blade on it, kind of used from like more like thrusting and stuff like that. But um, that's what she was proficient with. So she was a martial artist, which is cool because I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't know women were taught martial arts. Yeah, I didn't realize that either. Um, and they had a son, Kientaro. He lives through everything. I looked it up. <laughs> well, thanks for the warning, though, because I'm going to become emotionally invested in this, I'm sure. She, I believe she and he make it through. Okay. So, well, this is time of revolution. Yeah. Stuff happens. Thank you, because I am actually mm-hmm. holding my hands pretty tightly, and I'm, <laughs> I'm so emotionally invested in this. I'm actually glad that you're really interested in this, because I was really worried about how this would land. So I'm, I'm fully into it. I mean, it's just me, though. Cool. So when you're 18- just talking to me anyway, like just me and our friends. Yeah. Who will then leave harsh, harsh reviews. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> so in 1862, he and other Kumamoto forces were posted in Kyoto and before he became a personal bodyguard of Sanjo Sanatomi. In, so that's for about two years. And then in 1864, he leaves service of any kind altogether, out on his own, after losing his mentor to a Shinsengumi raid. Shinsengumi were a, I believe they were an imperialist group. Now I believe Gensai, at this point, he's coming to the point where he's not an imperialist. He wants, he doesn't want necessarily westernization, but he wants Japan to be their own strong nation state. And he knows that at some point it has to happen, i.e. the Meiji side. It, there's like a lot going on here, so I'm doing my best yeah, to keep you all on. That. So soon after, Genzai, on foot with another unknown number of assassins, attacked and assassinated Sakuma Shozan, I believe. Shuzan Shozan. He was carrying a royal decree to open up their ports to all foreign trade. He killed him in broad daylight on horseback, and his hey. guards couldn't stop him. Oh, That's wow. why... So, in the show, Kenshin, fashioned after Gensai, they talk about him having, like, quote-unquote, godlike speed. He's fast. This guy was fast. That's what set him apart. Because there's only four that are noted in this historical era. He's one of them. It's a big deal. Uh, So, he killed him. That decree to open up their ports to royal trade obviously got excluded with it. So, 
Uh, this is the only murder that can be proven and connected to him, but there are many others attributed to him, which I wouldn't be surprised. Um, afterwards, he took part in military actions and even led his own force to victory at one point until he decisively surrendered to Kumamoto forces. Ironically enough, the people that raised him. Yeah. yeah. Um, and was imprisoned until after the Meiji Restoration. So in 1868, Genzai was released from prison. So what, he was in there for four years? Yeah, four years. And he changed his name. Kukuda Genabai? Genabai? Again, there wasn't a whole lot of help there either, so I did my best. He was then subsequently arrested in 1870 for harboring some of his old comrades. Sadly, he was transferred to Tokyo, what's now Tokyo, in 1871 and executed by decapitation. Unfortunately, but his wife and son make it out alive as far as I could tell and as far as my research led. Uh, you can still visit his grave today in Tokyo. It is marked and well-kept. There's a picture of it on Wikipedia. Wow. It's uh, it's all there. You can go find him, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I thought it was cool, especially for people who are fans of the show. That's like the one that was fashioned after. Mm-hmm. I could see them going to visit it. Yeah. Um, he was said to have been so fast, he assassinated targets in broad daylight. And he and the other four Hitokuri, like assassins, were considered elite warriors of their time and are still famous today. So, yeah, I had to share that because, like, I was watching my show and I found all this stuff out and I was like, that is wild. Pretty cool. That's amazing. I know. I love that. I thought it was cool, especially, like, it was cool for me to a show of my childhood that had historical significance. Yeah, that was great, Katie. Oh, good. I'm glad that you was, liked it. I was yeah, nervous that was, everyone was going to be I like, like <laughs> white knuckled. I'm holding on to myself. Just if only I had a happier ending. But I got to the end and I was like, oh, man, he's decapitated. I was I know, pissed. I know, like, how you had to tell me ahead of time, like, okay, just think The kid out. and the wife are okay. I was like, oh, might not end so I'm, well for him. I'm emotionally invested in this, you can tell. Unfortunately, Gensai didn't get out, but which kind of sucks. But, um, yeah, the, I mean, to be fair, the show had a really crappy ending, too. So, oh. yeah, they give the main character leprosy and he dies. I was like, that's the shittiest fucking end you could have possibly imagined. <laughs> Learn how to write some decent story, because up until then it was fine. It was kind of one of those things where I think it got left off back in the 90s and someone came back and finished it today. Well, they did it wrong. Hurry, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that story, Katie. That was riveting. I actually, no, but honestly, I actually had no idea that was even a true story that was based on an actual person. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was just a cartoon that I used to watch, like, as a kid. Like I said, I had to sneak it on Adult Swim, so, like, you know, Mom didn't know. <laughs> But, like, I mean, obviously she wouldn't care. But, again, like, because of the historical context of it, I wouldn't have understood it as a kid anyway. So, like, now watching it as an adult, I was like, whoa, it meant a whole lot more. That's good. It's huh? good that you went back to it. It's pretty solid. Yeah. I should have to sit and hide in my own cave where Blake can't find me and make fun of me. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, would you say that you'd get into a super fight over it? I mean, are you going Dragon Ball Z with this one? Is that what you're trying to do right now? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm trying to, like, segue, but it was really piss poor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So my story tonight. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> my, 
My story tonight is about the Muhammad Ali Rocky Marciano super fight of 1970. Cool. I'm gonna be honest with you. I like I know Muhammad Ali and I know a bit, but I that meant nothing to me. So okay. How about we start with a little who would win in a fight? So Katie, who do you think would win in a fight, Spider Man or Batman? I'm a Batman girl, so always Batman. Okay. I don't care like about Spider-Man. Infinite prep time and all that sort of thing. Listen, with enough <laughs> prep time and money, he can do anything. <laughs> That's right. It's always the argument for uh, Batman winning in a fight, you know, like his prep time and his money. I don't see superheroes having to work as, I mean, he is a superhero. He's super to me. But I don't see heroes with powers having to work as hard as Batman. Mm-hmm. That's true. Batman's a bomb.com, and you will never change my opinion. All right. Excellent. All right. Well, so Batman would win. And then what do you think in like... Um, and why did you pick a Marvel DC character? What was that mashup about? I don't know. Did you mean Superman? No. I, seriously, Spider-Man or Batman. Oh, okay. Because I thought Superman could just crush Batman because Superman's got his little super rays. He didn't though, did he? Well, I know, but I just feel like... <laughs> Sorry. If you we're really entered... actually brass taxing it, you know, no, like this... you entered into a realm where I was prepared to fight. Did you see that? I was like, oh, you want to go there? Okay. No, I know, but I just feel like, no, I just, yeah, I feel like Superman would win. Listen, Spider-Man is just a young teenage fool. Well, Batman he's... would waste him. He's got some, some skills and some Oh, strength. I love Spider-Man. I'm just, yeah. But Batman has my forever heart. Okay. <laughs> so what do you think about a samurai versus a ninja? Ooh, that's a tough one. That's always one that kind of comes up in those, like, classic warrior I th- I mean, now, based at, honestly, now that I know what I know about samurai, I'm not sure. If a ninja had the element of surprise, sure, but what do you know about ninjas? I mean, now you're going to get me really into Well, they were, like, always, like, hid in plain sight. All a ninja's tools were farm tools converted to weapons so they could fight against invading clans. You didn't know that? That's awesome. Well, you just opened up a whole can of worms well, there. We're going to be talking about that at some point on the show anyway. So. I hope so. Yeah. Absolutely. Maybe a samurai enough. unless a ninja can take him by surprise. I don't know. So it's, you're asking really deep questions right now. Okay, so this one's a little more pertinent tonight to mm. tonight's story. Okay. How about Muhammad Ali versus Mike Tyson? I would. I'm a Mike Tyson fan, so... I would say, but I didn't grow up in the craze of Muhammad Ali, so I would say Tyson. So I'm coming at you tonight with a weird sports history story. World of Boxing takes place in the late 60s, early 70s. My story tonight's about, as I said, it's called the Super Fight, Mm -hmm. as it became known, between Muhammad the Greatest Ali and Rocky the Brockton Blockbuster Marciano. I, I don't know why name. I thought they needed to do that weird voice, but yeah. No, you should absolutely do that voice because so it's a huge works. fight. Yeah. And guess what? It never like actually happened. What? I know. Isn't this Wait, it really? Yeah. The oh. super fight that never really quite was. They never got in the ring together? Not for realsies. What? Yeah. I know. Buckle in, Katie, because I'm going to tell you all about it. Wait for it. <laughs> I see your seatbelt. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So here we go. Picture the scene. Okay, get your little Hollywood director hands going. Mm-hmm. Late 60s. Heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali's number comes up in the draft. But he's like, no, I'm not going to go. In 1964. Oh, the war draft. Oh, the Vietnam War draft. Oh. In 1964, he had converted to Islam and was listed as a conscientious objector due to his religious beliefs. On top of that, 
He famously said that he didn't have any problem with the Viet Cong. They weren't the ones booing him and calling for his blood in the American South. So he's like, I have no quarrel with the Viet Cong. Holy shit, because civil rights had just happened. Yeah, it was going on during that time. Wow. In the 60s. And I can see why he would do Whenever he was boxing in the South, they were, you know, I mean, he would get assault, like uh, harassed and burned crosses and all these threats and stuff like that. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. I mean, that, and that wasn't if just him. If only they could see the look I'm giving you right yeah. now. Yeah, and that's not just Muhammad Ali. That would happen to oh, any pro black folks. Athlete. But any, yeah, any athletes or teams coming through. Like that happened with Jackie Robinson as well, too. Jackie Robinson is the bomb.com. Yeah. No, he's awesome. No, I no. read a book in elementary school, I believe it was. Mrs. Darst had us shut up. One of the best grade teachers ever, but um, had us read it, and it was really enlightening. It was really cool. Yeah. So in April 1967, he's supposed to be drafted. And he says, no, I'm not going to go fight in your war. Mm -hmm. And so they strip him of his title, his boxing license ripped up, and he is sentenced to prison for five years for draft dodging. Okay, change scene. Five years, you said? Just, that's, here we go. We're looking at late 60s. That's Muhammad Ali. Boom, freeze. Yep. There we go. Next scene. Bam. Still late 60s. We're looking at the exact same time. Now we're in Miami, and we see ad executive Murray Warner in his office. I like to think it looks out over the water, and the sun is, like, shining and reflecting off the ocean. I think he's got, like, a dirty martini in one hand. And he, like... Remnants of Coke are blowing off the desk. Yeah, from his his liquid lunches. And he (laughs) throws the rest of it back, and he looks over at his assistant, and he says... He says... Johnson, I've been hearing a lot about these computer devices they're using over at NASA to put those boys on the moon. Look here at this one, Johnson, the NCR-315, which you can program to compute all kinds of things. What if we had it compute the winners of an all-time heavyweights boxing tournament? Oh, here we go. So that's how I like to picture how it went. That's exactly how it went. It went nothing like that. <laughs> Maybe the dialogue was similar. Well, if he was but from the East Coast. He's north. not so much like the Miami madman... Um, Don Draper sort as I like to think of him in my head as a you know an ad executive he's more of a more described as a middle-aged balding overweight at a little tiny office with one window over a bank and they kind of yeah they're kind (laughs) of actually that didn't come out in the 70s so never mind (laughs) all the articles uh that describe him weren't like very kind flattering flattering okay those are our scenes now year 1967 Ali, sentenced to five years for draft dodging, but due to an appeal process, he manages to avoid prison for the time being. Okay. He's still stripped of his title of heavyweight champion, as well as his boxing license, so he isn't able to fight during this time, which many consider was kind of right during his prime age years being a boxer. That same year. 1967, our Miami guy with the dollar signs in his eyes, Murray Warner, sends out a survey to 250 boxing experts who rated 16 of the top heavyweight fighters from different eras. So it wasn't even just current heavyweight fighters. Mm-hmm. It was just like kind of considered all the, the best, like the top 16 or so. Had them rate on 58 factors that <laughs> read this article from Sports Illustrated. It was actually written the year after in 1968. And it said that the factors ranged from the obvious to the sublime. Hmm. So the obvious factors being speed, susceptibility to cuts, 
ability to throw a left. Yeah. And the sublime factors being hardness of punch, killer instinct, and courage, which all sound like easy things to attribute a number to, if you ask me. I was going to say, I'm, I would absolutely, I mean, are you being Like, this sarcastic? one's an eight. Mm, that one's a seven, you know, like. You got to have the killer instinct or you won't do well. Well, yeah, game. but how do you quantify that? Well, Mike Tyson bit someone's ear off, so he's a 10. 10 out of 10. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I'm just saying, I mean, I mean, Killer Instinct, obviously, he was like, he was prepared to win, man. Yeah. There was no stopping him. Yeah. So he gets rated higher. Sure. Warner and boxing commentator Guy LeBeau also interviewed a lot of fighters as well, and they accumulated a boxing Bible of information on all the fighters. Okay. So, quote, they knew how often and where each fighter cut his opponents, where he was cut most often himself, how many punches and what kind he usually threw in a round, what pattern, pace, and rhythm he preferred, what blows hurt him the most, how many fouls he had committed. This was all according to that uh, Sports Illustrated 1968 Sports Illustrated article. Okay. So they had like a lot of cool information in terms of like what they were looking for. Straight data sheets. Yeah. And that brings us to the machine that this is all taking place on. So this, the machine that was going to be doing all of this was called the NCR 315, also known as the IBM 360 or the Univac 1108. And it was a computer from the era of punch card programming. Okay. You know, have you heard they of still that? Use that? Yeah, they yeah. still use that shit today. My first job, I had a punch card. Oh, okay. Are yeah. you fucking kidding me? What is it, 1965? Yeah, 67. Mm-hmm. No, I know. I, I know. I meant... <laughs> it's rhetorical. Sorry. <laughs> Got it. It had 5K, 5K, just 5K of core memory that had to be handmade. All the 58 factors in the statistics and everything that were collected, it got boiled down to an average numeric value. Okay. Then punched onto a card for each of the 15, uh, 16 heavyweights. That makes complete sense. That would be the easiest way to compute it. It makes me think of like those like collector's cards where they're mm-hmm. like, oh, speed, 10, exactly you know, like that kind of thing, like, like D&D or like Pokemon cards. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It just kind of like makes me think of like when it was like in the... They had baseball cards. like Baseball that, cards. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's what I was thinking too. I'm like, yeah. I've never actually seen one, but I know that they exist. Mm-hmm. We had trading cards for everything in the 90s. You, we had them for Power Rangers. We had them for Digimon. We had them for baseball. We had them for wrestlers. Mm-hmm. Or the WW... What is that? WWE. Yep, that's yeah, the letter F. I'm looking for. Oh, right. WWF mm-hmm. back in the day. They had they had trading cards. I mean, we had trading cards for everything. Yeah. The 90s was such a magical era. Right before technology came around to ruin everything. Tamagotchis. Oh, my God. Mine died all the time. Did you ever successfully raise one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was really good at Tamagotchi. What was your secret? Just obsessed with it. <laughs> no life. <laughs> <laughs> no life, yeah. It's like oh my just God. sit there and look my at it. I died in my locker all the time, and I tried so hard, and I'd just come back, and he was dead with like a pile of poop next to him. <laughs> I was like, God damn it. While computers were overall a new phenomenon, so there's no home computers, right? No. Right. No. More powerful computers just ended up taking up an entire room. And well, Windows not... didn't come around until 98. So, I mean, yeah. 95, not 98. I'm sorry. 95. <laughs> sure. So, yeah, just to let you know, yeah, this isn't like a machine that everyone has in their house or is like really common, but NCR 315, there it is. Mm-hmm. Now, computers at this point in time, like the late 60s, so 67, 68, computers were being used to play against in like checkers or chess. So it wasn't unusual that they were being used in a sports or, like, games mm-hmm. situation. 
but it was when computers were used in the spring of 67 at the University of Liverpool, where they did something similar but using 12 racehorses, like all-time great racehorses. Mm-hmm. And they're looking for, you know, the greatest horse, whatever. Well, they could these. put on top, just... Well, that's what I'm saying. Oh. Um, it calculated the horse. Is it Man of War? That's what everybody else said it was going to be. Yeah. I'm going to be pissed if you tell me it's someone else, but okay. Yeah, Citation. Was Citation the... would never be Man of War in any... Right. Ever, 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 ever. The horse race people were pissed because everyone far and away would always have Man of War as the winner. So, like, it was used in that same yeah. instance, but people were like, no, we don't agree with that. So it's just a little bit of foreshadowing. But our boy Murray, he sees this sort of thing and he goes, well, what about other sports? Mm-hmm. So he gets excited about it. But then in his ex- excitement, he is quoted as saying, we could do more than sports. He tells Sports Illustrated, much more. Wars. Hitler's Germany against the Roman Empire. Oh, Napoleon God. versus Alexander the Great. What about election campaigns? George Washington versus Franklin Roosevelt. Abraham Lincoln against George Wallace. And debates? Socrates takes on Karl Marx. Thoreau against Jean-Paul Sartre. Why not? Why not? It's high drama there, but the hubris is... Goodness. Now, look, I'll tell you why not. And I'm a stoner, and I can... Let me just tell you why not. You're comparing apples and oranges. You're not taking into account the intellectual creativity of a debate. And I love the idea of it, you know? Like, I would love to be like, oh, yeah... George well, Washington versus Abraham. Sure, this is fun, but like the whole horse what? thing, yeah. Because one horse back and because so they're many years apart. Conditioning is different for one, different to other, and all that. Like it's totally di- like you said, it's that whole. Mm-hmm. That's why I kind of like pause. I was like, well, that's apples to oranges because you'd have to put them in the same time frame, same conditioning tactics, same situations, and mm-hmm. then it's fair. Yeah, because you if can't being just... scientific about it or more scientific at well, least. Well, yeah. Otherwise, it's not fair. Well, but I mean, at least in sports and like horse racing there are certain numbers that could be used that could be plugged in but we're talking about like debates how are you going to match debates and stuff so i could see that i think there's a lot of missing data oh yeah for sure there's there's a lot of things that are wrong about it but at least there's something that you can use new measurable yeah at least something with some sort of number value whether or not that number value is valid or not but Hmm. So anyway, so he takes these heavyweight fighters, 16 heavyweight fighters across boxing history who have been reduced down to stats on punch cards. Mm -hmm. And then they get run through the NCR 315. Based on the results, Murray would give this like play by play, blow by blow account like he was a ringside announcer. And he created this whole radio series based on this greatest heavyweights champion. Okay. So... He records the ringside commentator portion of it, of all the the play-by-play of the fight, and then he ships off the recorded results to 380 radio stations around the world, ultimately gaining about 12 million listeners at the end of the day when when everything was said and done. So, commercial success, right? Well, that's a lot for the 60s, too, because with our technology, we reach billions and millions of people all the time, but, Mm -hmm. like, not us, but, like, today in today's right. society. So that's amazing back in the day. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. And all around the world. And the final fight of the tournament ended with Rocky Marciano victorious in the 13th round by knockout against Jack Dempsey, making Rocky Marciano the, technically the Why greatest. Why do I know that name, Marciano? Well, he's a very, very famous fighter. I mean, he was kind of like one of the all-time 
greats. Well, in this case, you know, the computer says he is the greatest. Yeah. So, I'm going to talk about him in a little bit. Okay, so. cool. Yeah. I'll I'd like you. to know. I just, it's one of those names I was like, I know that name. I'm not sure why I do, though. But, you want to know who wasn't so thrilled about the, the whole fight? Muhammad Ali. Mm. And in his match, he lost in the quarterfinals against Jim Jeffries, who Ali had earlier in his career called Jeffries history's clumsiest, most slow-footed heavyweight. Now, you've heard Muhammad Ali talk before Never. a fight, right? Ever. Uh-uh. Okay. That's, that's why I looked at you. I was like, I literally know, like, next to nothing. I'm, I, I know Tyson and Mayweather, but I don't know Ali. We can't record it, but I'm going to play it for you now, and we'll just cut it out. Okay. All right. Did you just... Yeah. Yeah. That I mean, it, was inter- it actually wasn't what I expected at all. But No. It's not like smack talk in terms of, like, just... Especially how it is day, today. Like, you get up right it's in somebody's face and be like, oh, I'm going to knock you out. I'm going to knock you out. Or whatever they or say. Or they're posed, putting yeah, the fist up and the to fist each other. Is no, like it's not like that at all. A, you know, it's like... It, yeah. it. He was, like, almost like an ultimate hype man for himself. Mm-hmm. But, like, a rhythmical hype man. Yeah. I just played Katie the how great I am speech where he says, um, I'm so mean. I'm an alligator. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes so everyone can hear it. But it's, there are a lot of videos like that. That's just one of the more famous ones, but just the way that's one of my favorite things is just how he would talk. And, Mm -hmm. um, the confidence he had was just brilliant because he'd be like, Oh, I'm so pretty. Like he's just mad. He's not as pretty as me and never as fast as me and all this stuff. And, um, I don't know. I just, I kind of like the bravado, but also like his rhythmical rhyming. Like he'd almost yeah. like sing song and like just come up with stuff he on did. the spot. He was like, so yeah. cool. It was almost like he was like lightly rapping almost. It mm-hmm. was really interesting. It was very cool. So I'm so mean. I make medicine sick. Bad. Bad. So good. All right. As you saw there, like you said, like for yourself that he was his own hype man. Totally. His reputation was everything. Mm-hmm. So him going down in a fight to Jim Jeffries, who he has this low opinion of, and Jim Jeffries wasn't really, it wasn't as good as Muhammad Ali because at that point Muhammad Ali was still undefeated. I was gonna and ask was you the heavyweight he champ that had been stripped of it. Fight. Yeah. So the fact that he, this computer says that he loses is is kind of shitty because yeah, up to that point he was undefeated even though his title was stripped, but. Then he's also been sentenced to prison. Although again, he wasn't in he's in appeal, appeal, appeal process, but um, but stripped of his title and his ability to box, and then this this little clunky computer with his proverbial spit in the face, you know, adding insult to injury. So Ali hit Warner with a one million dollar lawsuit for defamation. Hmm. Warner, in his slick kind of way. Comes back with a, how about, how about I give you $9,999 to film a fantasy fight against my champion, Rocky Marciano? And Ali accepts. Because he wasn't boxing, a lot of people think that he was just hard up for money as well, too. You know, he's going to be able to make a paycheck for something. But then he's, I also think, also strongly, in addition to that, is his is his want to defend his reputation to prove that and prove that he's actually better yeah and it was a legal way for him to do it because it wasn't a real fight so he could still mm-hmm. go he could still quote unquote go box rocky marciano even though is rocky alive at this point or no yeah oh okay oh yeah sorry yeah so rocky marciano still living and but retired okay 
both fighters accept the super fight, it's on. So now we're going to talk about each one of the fighters so that we, you can kind of be introduced to the, the players here. Muhammad Ali was born Cassius Clay and changes his name to Cassius X and then to Muhammad Ali in 1964 to rid himself of what he deemed his slave name. Mm-hmm. So Muhammad Ali was his, his new name and what he's He was a big Malcolm X supporter, wasn't he? Hmm? Wasn't he a big Malcolm X supporter? Right, he met Malcolm X, and then that's when he went through the conversion process to Islam yeah. and then changed his name. Through the 60s, becomes a great heavyweight champion. Mm-hmm. And although today we kind of look at him as like a folk hero or this legendary athlete, he was actually really disliked by a lot of people. Typically, oh, really? Yeah, typically white America, because he was viewed as this angry black man, you know. Also, it's the 60s and racial divide. And if anyone speaks out against that, mm-hmm. you know, you're automatically a yeah. target. And he is a black fighter who has a lot of confidence. People don't like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Who vehemently speaks out against <laughs> racial discrimination. Right. Exactly. So they're like, mm. in addition to all that, the press, as well as a lot of other fighters, still often call Muhammad Ali Cassius Clay. See, really? even even up into the super fight, I noticed I saw some transcripts of like the commentators during the super fight and, and also the subsequent radio show where they went through the 16 fighters yeah. where they referred to Muhammad Ali as Cassius Clay. Okay. Now Clay comes in with the left hook and like this whole thing. I was like, what? Really? It's 1964, he's changed his name huh. and was fully converted by that point. And I can also tell you as well, too, if you look on um, YouTube, there are times where he famously gets into it with people where he's like, they're like, oh, why do you, why call yourself Muhammad Ali here, Cassius? And he's like, that's, Cassius is my slave name. <laughs> like, my name is Muhammad Ali. And and he, like, is very um, assertive in the point. He's not getting violent with anybody, but yeah. he's very assertive and, like, saying, no, don't call me that. That's my slave name. This is my actual name. It would be if someone were to call me Catherine, I'd be like, no. And there is a fight between him and Ernie Terrell, who is also another black boxer. Okay. And there's an interview before the fight. You know how they, they're kind of like, oh, I'm going to knock him down and mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in the first round, five minutes in, or whatever it might be, you know. Yeah, the big table, and they're talking. They did that with horse racers, too. Trainers yeah. would just smack talk their horses <laughs> to each other. They did, it was. It was because boxing and horse racing were big back in the oh, day. Oh, yeah, sure. They were, it was the same shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so even Ernie Terrell also called Muhammad Ali Cassius Clay, and he said mm-hmm. it all leading up to this fight, and it gets to the pre-match interview where now Muhammad Ali is there with Ernie Terrell, mm-hmm. and he's like, and he's basically like, I, I hear what you're calling me, and you're saying it right to my face. He's like, you better say my name. He's like, and it's something along the lines of, I'm going to get the quote wrong, so sorry about that. But something along the lines of, you either say it now, or you're going to be saying it when you're on the ground, when you're on the ground yep. later kind of thing. And it was just cool. But then he calls him an Uncle Tom, and he said, you're just an old Uncle Tom. And, and then the white announcer in the middle is like, Ooh, let's get these guys off the air. Because at one point, like, Ali actually gets legitimately mad about it so that's why he's kind of viewed as like this like brash not at all how history remembers him but okay but now yes exactly now you know he lit the torch for the 1996 olympics i saw that did you Mm -hmm. know i did not realize because they just played that for our tokyo olympics Mm -hmm. and he was shaking when he held it and blake goes he goes did you not realize that he had parkinson's i said i didn't know that he goes yeah i was like yeah. That was hard to see. Which is actually how I decided to do this story. Because you saw it on the... Well, you know how I do, like, the this day in history on the social media yeah. and stuff? And yeah. so, like, just a few days out of the week, I'll 
be like, oh, what's the story? And I'll just kind of scroll and find something I can yeah. feel like I can talk about or might be like a little bit weird or unusual. And it, uh, it was kind of a bummer week. Um, TWA Flight 800 crashed in 1996, which was a huge plane disaster. Oh, I don't know. We're not going to go into it now, but I mean, yeah, a huge plane disaster. And I was at my grandma's house that summer. Really? And so I remember seeing it all over the news. Oh, wow. And then shortly after, there was the Olympic Games, yeah. which there was a bombing there. But oh, anyways, really? Yeah. Where was that Games held? In Atlanta. Um, Oh, okay. They found a backpack under the park bench or something like that. And so there's a whole story about that, which actually we could probably, since it's like weird and unusual sort of history, though, like a true crime twist. It's just history in general. It's an interesting story about how that one went. Um, Interesting. Okay. I did not know any of that. But I was started thinking of, I was like, okay, and then the Olympics. And then I was, then I thought of Muhammad Ali lighting the torch. Mm -hmm. And then, because I was thinking of that same year, 1986, and that was a Mm -hmm. memory that stood out. And then I just happened across the story. I wish I knew exactly what I heard about it, but I saw something like this super fight with Muhammad Ali that this huge fight that never existed or whatever. And, like, and I was what? like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I was like, that's how I'm going to do the story. Anyway. Okay. Cool. So now we're going to look at Rocky Marciano, who by the time the super fight comes around, he'd been retired from boxing for 13 years. Oh, God. Yeah. In 1954, a 12-year-old Muhammad Ali, who took up boxing when his, when his bike was stolen, would listen to his radio, you know, mm-hmm. at night, and then he was listening to boxing matches. Yeah. And he heard when Rocky Marciano was announced the heavyweight champion of the world. Wow. And so he, like, was kind of an inspiration to a lot of other boxers, but, um, you know, was the heavyweight champion. Yeah. Ali took up, um, took up boxing for himself. So Rocky Marciano came from an Italian-American immigrant family in the shoemaking factory town of Brockton, Massachusetts. That's what they call him, the Brockton Blockbuster. Okay. Rocky was 5'10", and everyone's... Not very tall. Yeah, not very tall for heavyweights. Uh-uh. And trainers and uh, people around him would say Rocky didn't actually know boxing in terms of, like, the art of mm-hmm. it. Or, like, you know, like, all the moves or the feints and stuff like that. They're like, he would just go in just to literally just smash your brains out. Like, that would be... He would just try and hit as oh, hard as he one could. one of those guys. And could just... He just had, like... Um, no formal training. He like, was just... You want to talk about killer instinct. That's what. That's it right there, <laughs> that's it, Yeah. That's it. And he could just, like, just smash people with his fists. Apparently a very wonderful, wonderfully nice man, you know. Very quiet, kind of unassuming, but just... He was brutal in the ring. Yeah. And it it, it worked for him, though, because he was, and remains so, history's truly undefeated heavyweight champion with 49 wins. So that's why he was... 49 wins. Do you know how many fights? That's a lot of fights. That's a lot of 49 fights. (laughs) Yeah. What did he die of? Okay. Okay, hey, I'm just on. saying, I, all I think is brain damage when it comes to this. Well, I'm sorry. That's where yeah. my first thought goes is. But it seems that, I, I'm, though I'm not going to get into it, and I didn't look into it further, it seems that during his boxing career, he had a lot of problems with his manager stealing money. Oh. His career was also secretly controlled by the mafia as well, too. Mm. So I guess they're, you know, it's kind of kind of tough to be, be him as a champ, but he loved boxing and did very well at it. Yeah. Due to growing up during the Depression, he had a very specific relationship with money, as many do that grew up during the Depression. Is this the Cinderella Man or no? Is that a... Mm. Okay, sorry. And in this time, cash was scarce. So cash was king. And you would need to just try and keep hold of it all, you know, as much as you could. So... His accountant told a story that he he's like I could I've seen him write out checks for fifty thousand a hundred thousand like no big deal because it was just a piece of paper he's like it was just a piece of paper to Rocky, 
Whereas if he had $40,000 in $10 bills, he wouldn't part with like a single one of them. So he was like very attached to cash. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, I mean, he, he walked away from his career with 3 million, I guess, I think it was 3 million in earnings at that time, which is great. Which is but then he, <laughs> But then he also, because he had that, you know, that need for having income coming in, it helped him earn plenty of money after he retired. So he had these product endorsements. He had a restaurant chain. He had a sausage company. He was also like a referee and a he TV had a presenter. sausage company? Mm-hmm. Good yeah. God. <laughs> was it Italian sausage? Probably. I don't Probably. know. It was an Italian, Italian-American man, so could have. But, so there's a little Rocky, bit. sorry. Yeah. But, you know, actually, yeah, that's kind of who Rocky Balboa takes a little bit of his inspiration from. Um, Sylvester Stallone, Rocky Balboa. Oh, which I finally have seen. I can finally jive with you, Adrian. Yeah. (laughs) I'm finally there with you. Yes. Okay. So there's a little bio of each of the the men, the fighters. So now we're going to talk about how they managed to do the fight. Boom. Fight time. Muhammad Ali, Rocky Marciano agreed to the fight. So they started trying to lose weight and get into some sort of fighting shape to be on film and, you know, kind of look the part. Rocky actually loses 50 pounds. And then he puts on a toupee because I guess he was balding. So Aww. he has a toupee and he has a guy, a special guy in New York that would make his toupees for him. And, you know, so he kind of got some hair back for, to relive the glory days sort of thing. Kind of look, look a little bit more youthful. Yeah. Articles I read about it weren't particularly kind to what he, the toupee looked like. But I've seen pictures. I have seen pictures of the poster and, like, clips of the actual fight mm-hmm. i don't think it looks that bad but okay. that's just me but up close in person might be yeah different. maybe it might be different yeah <laughs> so i mean they didn't look exactly like their peak fighting yeah bodies but it was close enough for jazz you know that yeah. kind of thing so the two men went to a warehouse in northern miami inside is a boxing ring and then the walls are all blocked out blacked out sorry blacked out walls to make it really dark like mm-hmm. a dark background to fight against over the course of a few days, Ali and Marciano would spar 72 one-minute rounds. They practiced taking falls and knockdowns, being on the ropes, switch positions, who's on the ropes. You know, they try to basically recreate anything that could happen mm-hmm. in a match. So that way they had a lot of footage to work from. And everything was considered as well, too. So, like, whatever could happen, let's film it. And though no one took real shots on the other, there was mostly, like, just kind of stomach taps or like little punches, yeah. punches and things. Yeah. It didn't stop flares of competition and just general fuckery to happen. You know, when you get two heavyweight champions that, you know, are kind of going through the two motions a little bit. testosterone <laughs> drinking, yeah. add? <laughs> so for example, Muhammad Ali loved to do like little jabs and like little flicks at Rocky's toupee and knock it off and like send it flying across the what room. An asshole. <laughs> <laughs> which Marciano was really defensive about because he had like these toupee special made to be like hey man watch the piece kind of thing yeah. <laughs> and well another time Rocky had gut punched Ali when Ali was on the ropes and so it kind of knocked some of the breath out of him and so it wasn't necessarily all fun and games <laughs> you know but the two but the two men actually really bonded you know quote unquote on set or in the yeah. ring and a really great friendship developed especially from- since Muhammad obviously looked up to him, like right, and they know. had the mutual respect of each other as fighters, and you know, knowing the work ethic of of each other mm-hmm. as well too, which were both very high. Ali referred to Marciano as champ throughout filming, and then in his autobiography, spoke very highly of him yeah. as well too, and how great he was. One day while they were having a little lunch break, the two of them were sharing a grapefruit, and the conver- conversation turned to Laurel's favorite. 
I love grapefruit. You do love grapefruit. I'm obsessed with the grapefruit. Turn to the racial divide in the country and the riots that were starting to break out. And the conversation started snowballing more and more into, well, hey, wouldn't it be great if there was something we could do, me and you together, a white guy and a black guy, said Marciano. So then they talked about doing an inner city bus tour um, or an inner city neighborhood bus tour. And Ali was like, he's totally on board on that. And he's like, it's really exciting. He's like, imagine Muhammad Ali and Rocky Marciano going into the worst areas. We could shake up the world, you and me. Would you do it? Would you do it? Marciano was like, yeah, I would do that. Everything filmed and ready for edit. The hype for the super fight begins. So everyone's getting all hyped up for the fight. It was touted as the great white hope of the 50s versus like the angry black man of the 60s. The race aspect. Yeah, the race aspect was really hyped up. Like the white guy who represents the American dream versus like angry Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. I know. One of the articles I used as a source had a quote from one of the journalists that was talking to Ali during this fight Mm -hmm. or or while the the super fight was getting hyped up. uh, And it was so, and I'm not being like overly sensitive or anything. Like it was so absolutely unreal how that man talked to Muhammad Ali. Really? Like it actually like made me go, holy shit. How did he not punch him in the face, knock people out left, right and center. Like I, there's, because the things that this guy said to him basically being like, uh, we need this great white hope to knock your ass in line, basically, and, and shut you up. And oh yeah, I mean, it, and then crap. he says we need. And there's like the N word was thrown in there. It was like what? yeah, I was like I actually started getting like a little bit nauseous while I was reading. I was like I can't believe someone was literally. And it wasn't like they were talking trash through the paper back and forth or something like that. No, they were the man was face. literally face to face with them. I was like, how did he not completely break him over his knee? I don't know because, because the things this better. man said. He knew it wouldn't make insane. it better. <laughs> yeah. I was like, ugh. Yeah, it was it was really gross. Because he knew to be above it all. Yeah. As hard as that would be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Obviously he has extreme patience because I'm gonna tell you I wouldn't be as patient as he was. Yeah. Um Yeah, exactly. So they, they're really hyping up like this racial divide as well too, I think. Um some directly, some indirectly, I don't know. Mm. Meanwhile, the computer computes the results of the fight and the footage is edited to match the results from the dozens of different little sparring bouts that they did. And then also they filmed seven full endings, different endings to piece together that could happen. Murray Warner, Guy LeBeau, and then some other famous commentators lend their talents as like ringside commentators. Tickets were sold in 600 theaters all around the country, which is America. <laughs> Tickets were sold in 300. Which is America. <laughs> God bless. Uh, Tickets were sold in 600 theaters all around America. The fight was going to be aired live on January 20th, 1970. No one knew the results except the people who edited together the footage and they were secret. The Mm -hmm. fighters didn't know. No one else knew. Muhammad Ali watched in a theater in Philadelphia. And do you think he lost or won? He watched himself win or lose. What do you think? I mean. Don't think that hard about it. You can just throw out an answer. It's fine. I watched (laughs) himself lose. Okay. Yep. You're right. (laughs) <laughs> lost in the 13th round KO'd by Rocky Marciano and he didn't see it coming because he's like obviously I'm the greatest and so he really thought he was going to win yeah he thought he was going to win but there was one person who guessed the outcome but unfortunately wasn't alive long enough to see it happen a few weeks after filming 
Rocky Marciano boarded a three-seat Cessna in Chicago, and it later crashed into a field in Iowa. It was the night before his 46th birthday, so he never got to see the super fight. Oh, no. But he told his brother, they're like, hey, Rock, how do you think you, how, how do you think you do in the fight? And he turns around and goes, I win the 13th round by knockout. No way. Or something. He's like going down the thirteenth or something like that, yeah. and like laugh. Now he didn't know. I mean, everyone no, says like, no, know. we did not tell him or whatever. No. But he, that's what he guessed. But he never got to see it happen, which is sad. Damn. But Ali was stunned by the loss, even if it was a fake fight and a fake loss. Yeah. But he did say, I mean, even though I say it's a fake fight, a lot of people watching this were so wrapped up in the fantasy of it. Mm-hmm. He said in the theater, people were booing and like screaming and crying because they thought Muhammad Ali got knocked out and he's like no it's fake like it's okay yeah he realizes when he was seeing like such a negative reaction to him getting beat in this fight he was like I feel really ashamed of what I've done like I feel like I've sold sold myself out and um you know kind of sold myself participating in it yeah and then you know and losing and he's like I wouldn't have lost I wouldn't have lost you know it was kind of his Mm -hmm. his feeling about it and I am the greatest yeah you got to step yeah. in believing it or it won't happen. Absolutely. And he he believed it. And, you know, so much so that he went on the Dick Cavett show, which is a late night talk show, mm-hmm. and called it a fake and a Hollywood sham. Hmm. Now, Warner wasn't too happy about this because... He agreed to it. Yeah, he agreed to it. He'd already paid Muhammad Ali for his services, appearance, and whatever. And, and Muhammad Ali speaking out against it was starting to hurt the computer's reputation other mm-hmm. fighters were starting to be like well if the champ's not into it you know I, i'm not yeah you know i'm not gonna follow down that that path he and, and murray was actually planning to do that following year doing like a middleweight championship yeah so he's just gonna kind of go through each one of those weight classes and and do this but um when he went to kind of start matching other fighters up he had sugar ray robinson back out and that, Sugar and it Ray's cost, not just a band from the 90s. It was a boxer? Yeah. No way. I think, actually, they probably just took their name from... Did they? I think they did, yeah. Oh. Uh, so the super fight was going to be between Sugar, Way, Sugar Ray Robinson and Frenchman Marcel Sardin. Yeah. But because... Well done, mate. Yeah. But because Sugar Ray lost faith in the computer, he's like, I don't want to do this. And so all these other fighters were starting to go, yeah, yeah, we don't want to do it either. Not too long after, everyone else lost interest and faith in the computer when the computer computed the results of an upcoming fight between Joe Frazier and Bob Foster. Mm-hmm. So it's the computer said that Joe Frazier would suffer a six-round defeat to Bob Foster in their upcoming heavyweight title fight, which is actually a real fight. So it was trying to you know, guess the results ahead of time. And everyone's like, well, that's not going to happen. There's no way Joe Frazier's going down in the sixth and... That's not happening. That's, that computer's bunk. It's stupid. And that's indeed what happened. Joe Frazier instead actually did wipe the floor with Bob Foster and did not go down in the sixth. So everyone's like, okay. right. And Men of War never would have lost a citation. Right. I'm not yeah. letting it go. So people were all like, this computer doesn't know what the hell it's talking about. <laughs> Me like, this is bull crap. As soon as you said that, did you see the flames? I know. I was like, I probably shouldn't even mentioned that part of it, but I thought it would be interesting to you since it's you know. It's extremely interesting to me. Yeah. I didn't know that, and I'm glad you told me. So... Murray Warner's idea about computer sports is all busted, but he still walks away with two and a half million dollars, so he's up at the end of the day. And mm-hmm. now at this point, like after the computer stuff dies down, Muhammad Ali gets his boxing license back and is starting to pick up his heavyweight um, title, again. title and fight again, you know, so he goes on with his career. 
um, and ended up passing away in 2016. So Did he ever lose? Cheers to you, champ. He was defeated at one point. The internet says 56 wins, 5 losses, and 37 knockouts. So of his, of his 56 wins, he had 37 KOs. Wow. Before he retired in 1981. Oh, so he boxed a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had a good long career. But up to that point, he was also undefeated when he went against Rocky Marciano in mm-hmm. the super fight. That never happened. The super fight that never happened. And there it is. So the super fight between Muhammad Ali and Rocky Marciano, which you can find on YouTube. I'm going to also post that in the show notes. Interesting. So you can see it. But it's uh, it's really interesting. Yeah. And they actually like, used ketchup on Rocky's face for a cut. Did they? <laughs> yeah. That's funny. So it was a very theatrical yeah. production. Do you, I mean, you've obviously probably looked at pictures of these men. Who do you think would have won? I don't know. You know, I, I, I was vaguely familiar with Rocky Marciano. Yeah. I didn't know his record before I went into story, research. Yeah. But knowing that he was the undefeated heavyweight champ, I really think it could have been him, him that could have won it. Although, like, if it was Muhammad Ali versus anyone else, I'd probably say Muhammad Ali. Like, right. You know, kind of, you're, if you're pairing, comparing someone in their prime, which, again, it's a very difficult thing to do, yeah. which is what Murray Warner was trying to capture. Trying I appreciate the spirit of it, yeah. Murray, but, uh, you know, you, you, there's an art to some things. Even things that might have a number have a little bit of art to them as well, too. So Maybe there's a reason they didn't occur in history at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone needed to have their era of champ mm-hmm. when, when they needed it. I mean, yeah. He, Rocky Marciano was touted as again like the American dream. Like, hey, if a Italian American shoemaker's kid can from the depression from the depression can yeah you know become a great boxer, so can you. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Going into the Cold War, you know, he was that sort of working man, American spirit sort of thing, um, versus yeah, the communist Russia, right? you know, the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and then. People needed change. They got Muhammad Ali. Right point in time. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it. There we go. Well, I'm uh, pretty stoned. I'm kind of ready for some tacos. I'm yeah, so absolutely I'm gonna ready finish for the rest of this drink. Let's get some tacos. Um, Katie, I'm going to hightail it to some tacos. What do you think? <laughs> right behind you. Thank you so much for listening. We love you guys so much. Like I said, I'm stoned. <laughs> I just want to. I just want to give you a big fuzzy microphone quickly hug. Quickly going downhill. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign off before I get too silly. Love you guys. Thank you so much for your support. And Katie. Side tail and out of here. Yeah, there you go. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please consider rating and reviewing on whatever platform you get your pods. It really does help us so much and also helps others find us and join our weekly history party. As for the socials, you can find us on Instagram at Hightailing History and on Facebook at Hightailing Through History or with the username at Hightailing History. You can contact us at HightailingHistoryPod at gmail.com. And now for the moment I'm cringing about. This is what happens when you get stoned and try to write the closer of your show and have nothing cool to end it with. All right, you ready? Until next week. Get money, get high, give love, and always try. Have a great week, folks.